0: Hi everyone, welcome to a brand new episode of the Behold Podcast on the Genre Equality channel. I'm Hitzer. I'm Issa. uh This week, we're going to be going way back into the past to talk oh, yeah. about the golden era of film noir. Um, you may be familiar with what film noir is because it's a genre that has lasted from the 1940s all the way to today. In fact, many film noirs are still being made right now, but we're going to talk about the initial heyday of the film noir, meaning the mm. 1940s and the 1950s, you know. Um so these are very old movies, which I feel stand the test of time. Uh, but because they are close to a century old, I feel yeah. like a lot of um a lot of our younger listeners may not be too familiar or may not have the inclination to go to their video oh, the new video stores. What am I talking about too? Um to <laughs> to rent in whatever digital or physical form. Uh, these these uh, crime classics from the 40s and the 50s, you know, they feature yeah. you know, the, they, they started the trend of film noir and, and all the tropes, the, the rain streaks, streets, the fan Patels, the hard-boiled detectives, the anti-heroes you know, and, and all of this and we're here to talk about four of the best in my opinion, there's certainly a lot more than that oh, but yeah, I'm here to sure. talk about four of the best mm-hmm. um, which is Austin Wells's Touch of Evil Billy Wilder's Sunset Boulevard. This is a controversial pick because some people don't think it's film noir, but I consider it to be uh, Uh because all the hallmarks are there. In addition, we'll be talking about The Third Man. And the oldest, it is The Maltese Falcon, uh, which I feel is actually one of the strongest of the picks and one of the strongest film noir films overall. Um, Before we begin our discussion on these classic films from from the 50s and 40s, um Aissa, uh, tell yeah. me when when did you start becoming a fan of film noir are you a fan of film noir and what are you ah. say, what, what are your favorite films from it perhaps from present day
1: okay so i i think this might be the first time that i have like seriously dipped my toes into film noir as it was conceived uh, mm-hmm. I am a big fan of neo noir. I think is is modern noir, neo noir. You know, or, or films that have borrowed heavily from the noir aesthetic, uh, yes, the storytelling, mm-hmm. uh, and so on and so forth. So, like, um, like we've discussed before, Blade Runner is one of my favorite films of all time, and that Definitely has a very heavy yeah. neo noir feel to it, as mm-hmm. are a lot of the other, you know, even like comic books that, that take on that tone like uh, Batman Year One for example like one of my favourite is also in a noir kind of uh, tone and aesthetic Sin uh, City is classic Sin City is a classic one yeah Love yeah. Sin City not so much mm-hmm. the rest of it um, yeah um, yeah <laughs> <laughs> but yeah so I've always been kind of fascinated with like that kind of like tone the anti-hero the kind of like um, high contrast hard lighting uh, mm-hmm. sometimes black and white Uh you know kind of look and feel to all of that and it was a very interesting kind of exploration for me doing um, these four movies to kind of see the origins of that uh, that whole style and that whole genre but this Mm -hmm. is the first time I think that I've seriously um, sat down to to go through movies of that particular era in this particular genre yeah
0: yeah um, definitely if if you're fans of modern more modern movies such as um, Seven, um, Heat, uh, L.A. Confidential, uh, Gone Girl, um, both the comic book and film versions of Sin City, David mm-hmm. Lynch's Mulholland Drive, stuff like that. They would, not, they would not exist without the four films we're talking about here. Um, these, is the, these are the origins of film noir. Um, and I, I feel still stand the test of time because so much of what they've done is still often imitated. Um, And the classic noir era is just remarkable to me for just establishing such a cool visual tone and style. Um, First of all, let's go to a legendary filmmaker, Orson (laughs) Welles. And uh, let's talk about A Touch of Evil. This is uh, a film noir portrait of corruption and morally compromised obsessions that stars Orson Welles himself as Hank Quinlan, a crooked police chief who frames a Mexican youth as part of an intricate criminal plot. Um, Charlton Heston, uh, those damn dirty apes, uh, plays an honorable <laughs> Mexican narcotics investigator who clashes with the bigoted Quinlan after probing into his dark past. Um, yeah. It also features a memorable supporting cast, including Janet Lee as Heston's inquisitive wife, uh, Akeem Tamaroff as a CD underworld leader, and Zaza Gabor and uh, Marlene Dietrich uh, as an animatic gypsy, uh, and they complete this fascinating drama um, engulfed in incredibly haunting cinematography and, mm-hmm. and a great score by Harry Mancini. Um, I've seen A Touch of Evil, both versions of it, the recut and the original version, a few times. You've seen the recut version. Mm-hmm. Uh, give me give me your thoughts on what I consider to be the, the, one of the pinnacles of film noir.
1: Okay. Um, yeah i I realize again, like I think I said this the last time we did kind of westerns, right mm-hmm. um as modern viewers of cinema, we are incredibly spoiled um yeah. by subtitles, we are incredibly spoiled by like the kind of like pacing and grab your attention, things of a lot of modern movies. So sometimes mm-hmm. it's a little difficult um to, to to kind of dive back into the history of cinema and see some of the great works from there, right mm-hmm. A Touch of evil out of the four was definitely a bit more difficult to follow, I think. Um, yeah, sprawling. Yeah, it, it is it's sprawling. Um, the edit, the editing choices are fascinating and interesting and something that we do see a lot, right? Like, I, I do feel like there are a lot of very iconic shots that are, are, are trying to be duplicated. But they're quick. And they have this kind of, like, very effervescent... Um, kind of ephemeral feel to that where, where we kind of jump from like the middle of one scene into mm. like the subplot and then back into the first scene to kind of complete that. And and if you're not paying attention, right, like if you glance away and look at your phone, which happened to me a number of times, <laughs> yeah. um, it's easy for you to miss something, right? Because these films are, are, are dense in... Um, it not, it's it not like a Nolan kind of like, oh, you know, like this high concept or anything naturally, but a dense visually in a particular manner, right? Like there isn't like too much there to kind of fill in while you're not paying attention via, via mm-hmm. audio cues of anything of the sort. Um, yep. Yeah, so like I did find like the, my first time at watching Touch of Evil, I was distracted. I had something else on my mind uh, and I really had to kind of like, uh, um, you know, like,
0: focus put all
1: of that out of the way sit down to really really pay attention to it because the movie demands that kind of attention from you if you want to like fully understand what's going on
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, but that being said like it is uh, it is iconic in its own very unique way uh, I, I feel like a lot of the 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 cinematography and the way like well's very specific vision for what he wanted this to be or at least what it ended up being in in this kind of like 1998 recut version um Mm -hmm. is like it it gives you the same vibe and the same feel of all the modern kind of like neo-noir stuff like it's very hard to divorce that feeling while you're watching touch of evil
0: Mm, Um, exactly
1: yeah, and uh, having having done some reading about Wells and and his kind of like fascinating career and who he is as a person, yeah. uh, I have to say that Touch of Evil is like well, first of all, one of the standout movies of his career, yeah. Um, both in terms of his di- directorial um, slate as well as his acting career, but man, Quinlan is such such a typical like figure for Wells to be playing. I mean, he he also appears in one of the other movies that we will be talking about later. Uh yes. Much earlier in his career, about ten mm-hmm. years earlier in his career, um, but yeah, Quinlan really kind of like embodies like a lot of the characteristics that like Wells was known for, and considering that he did the directing as well as like a bulk of the rewrite for the script, um, it's 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 unsurprising that like it the character feels a bit biographical. I mean, I mean, just in terms of the character traits of Quinlan, it's like um, yep. you know, just kind of like um, this 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 well, self-absorbed, essentially, uh, holds a grudge, um, you know, kind of in his own head and in all these things that Dead was is like kind of famous for mm-hmm. um, and difficult to work with. Uh, I, I just thought it was a fasc- fascinating kind of character study as far as everything goes uh, yeah. with the plot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I- like, yeah, jumping back into back into like the origins of noir, it is uh, it is a little difficult when you start mm-hmm. to realize that this is like at that point in time this is the genesis of the genre itself and there is particular meaning making to every decision that they make as opposed to modern day where they are borrowing that aesthetic or that, yeah. those storytelling tropes like those uh these um the movies that that use that in in this day and age right are, are dipping into a wealth of meaning that has already been created for that, but like going back to the Genesis, like you kind of have to switch your mind to it, um, mm. in order to kind of immerse yourself a little better. Uh, mm. But yeah, like I, I, think like Touch of Evil, like really kind of embodies that, and it's very easy to see that, you know, why why some people regard it as one of the best um, film noir movies, uh, mm. and one of the best movies of all time.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, I had this weird, like, kind of similar-ish discussion because, um, the new Sopranos movie is out. It's called The Many Saints oh, of the Oh, yeah. So, <laughs> so I have a, a couple of friends who kind of uh, never seen the Sopranos and delve back into it. Yeah. And and we they were kind of saying like the show is really good, but you know like what's so special about it? You know, like you see a lot of the same things in the Sopranos that you see in like a uh, Breaking Bad or The Wire or um, Ozark or you know all of the other more modern shows, and then. You know, like it's hard for them to think that like the things that they see in Breaking Bad and all these other shows were invented in The Sopranos. You know, yeah. it, it it only seems out of place and dated because like it's often copied and often imitated. You know, like Bullet Time in The Matrix, right? You know? Yeah, like they invented it. You know, so they can't be blamed for overusing it, right? You yeah. <laughs> um, this movie in particular was actually based on a novel called Batch of Evil by Wit Masterson. Mm-hmm. Um, it was kind of a cheap. Pulp fiction, you know, a little thriller. Um, Austin Wells did a great job turning, you know, that that nothing little novel into great art. In one of the rare instances of ad- adaptation being better than the source material. Um, yeah. you mentioned some of the camera work, right? If mm. if for nothing else, the film is most remembered, and again, still imitated for its remarkable single tracking shot opening. Oh yeah, it's a dazzling three minute setup that sucks you into this. Neon lit uh, cesspool. The, 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 ca- the camera like cranes and swoops through the busy night scene as we watch um, Mike Vargas played by Heston, of course, uh, and his um, blonde all American uh, wife, uh, Susie. Um, they are kind of slumming on honeymoon. Uh, they are just strolling into America in a car in search of, you know, uh, an ice cream soda, I believe. And yeah. <laughs> uh, an unidentified an unidentified man plants a bomb in a convertible. Um, pedestrians scurry around. the The driver's a little drunk, you know. the The companion complains at the checkpoint that she's got this ticking noise in my head, you know. Um, Vargas, Susie, and the border patrol guard exchange in you know, a small talk to establish, you know, a kind of um sketch of their backstory. Yeah. And then kaboom! The honeymoon is over. Um, but even before the kaboom, the tension of ticking bomb in the car, um, it's palpable. It's great. Um, it's is the things that you know Hitchcock did so well even before this. Mm-hmm. Um, Wells' evil Hank Quinlan uh, as the police chief from the American side of the border, who um, he, he arrives to take control of the car bombing investigation and and gets in Vargas's face, you know, while Susie is kind of waylaid and and menaced by uh, the drug dealing gang that Vargas has been working to shut down. So within minutes, you know, the, the cards have been dealt in in this uh, very sprawling. Uh, deeply perverse kind of game that they're playing um to it's it's one of the most uh, immaculately plotted early film noirs i've ever seen there's a lot yep. going on here <laughs> uh that in I, I know it's not feasible in that day and nature but like i kind of would have liked to see a prestige drama from this because oh, right, that's man. it yeah that's enough yeah. of this um i'm not trying to say that anyone should ever turn this into a prestige <laughs> drama because I, I don't trust anyone to do it but yeah it could have been like it could have been in this day and age. Like uh, Austin Wells would have gone to HBO with this.
1: Oh yeah, for sure, for sure. Yeah. Uh, Austin Wells would have been. I I think you know, um, he would he would still be dominating headlines uh, in in this day and age, right? Just with like the wealth of technology that has come to to TV and to cinema that he has to work with, and just for like his personality and the the kind of like how dominating it is in general, even for his time.
0: Yeah, yeah, you know, um, you mentioned his performance as Quinlan, and he's one of the, the giant noir psychopaths ever presented oh, yeah. on screen, you know, mm-hmm. he's this bloated figure whose abuse of power has turned him into a a spiritual and a physical monstrosity, Um, Wells was already pretty hefty, but he expanded himself with padding and a false nose to make him look even more obese, you know, he looks like a... It looks like a mess, you know. As yeah. uh, uh, as the fortune teller later tells him, right? You know, mm-hmm. this this dark vision of kind of dissolution is kind of akin to uh, Citizen Kane a little bit. Yeah. Uh, and and the idea of Heston as a Mexican may be preposterous in twenty twenty one, uh, but his performance is actually really interesting. His his confidence in a sophisticated role is sufficient to prevent the the most satirical wells from crushing him. You know, he's yeah. no, it, it's it's no. I guess it's it's kind of technically brown face, but not really, because um he presents a really fully fleshed out, sympathetic version of the Mexican hero that we never saw in the 50s. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, you know, unfortunately the politics being what they were, especially in the 50s, you know, like they wouldn't have casted a Mexican actor in a, in a big budget role such as this, you know. Um but, yeah, it's 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 a great film with a lot of three-dimensional characters. It's a great look mm-hmm. at evil. Um, Hank Quinlan is clearly one of the most um despicable villains, uh, at least that we a, a, in in the film noir era, and and yeah. still to this day, very very well done. You know, um, any other thoughts on on, on this? You know, either um in terms of his themes or metaphors or, or or cinematically even.
1: Uh, okay. So like, even as we're talking, as as Quinlan is kind of like uh the embodiment of, of 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 evil within within the landscape of this film, I, I mm-hmm. found it fascinating when they spent time to talk about him relapsing from 12 years of sobriety, mm. um, just because of, of this kind of like the stress of that. I, I thought that was a very interesting um, creative choice to kind of make, right? For yep. someone who is like, clear, clearly this is the bad, big bad guy, okay? Uh, and, and like, there is a moment of kind of like a humanity... I mean, he falls back into drinking, right, and all that. But, like, the fact that he's been sober for 12 years, like, they never really detailed, like, the history of that and so on and so forth, which is fine. But I just thought, like, in that moment, especially where it's placed within the movie itself, it's just kind of, like, a fascinating look at that. Because um, yeah. usually that's something that, you know, you reserve for heroes, you reserve for, like, uh, you know, like an entire movie is about Tony Stark doing, you know, like, relapsing into into uh, his alcoholism and, and, and things like that. But, yeah it's very rare for you to take a moment from what is a very fast-paced and dense uh, plot, right? Mm. In order to take a step back and like kind of show that as, as you know, like he's the bad guy, but he's been sober for 12 years as just kind of like, is that a character trait mm-hmm. that is to be praised or to be to be curious about? Like what exactly, you know, is, is there? And I, I just thought it was a uh, something that stood out to me, I think watching it for the first time.
0: Yeah, yeah, you know, like it has a lot of um prestige drama elements, you know, like the characters are very well rounded. They have um backstory and they have like details that paints a full picture of them, even though the running time clearly is not it's not six or seven seasons, right? It's, oh, it's yeah. a couple of hours, you know. But you 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 get enough of it, like, And clearly, if this was a show, it would have been exported a, a little bit more. Um, I think metaphorically and 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 in the sin, in in the cinematography and and as well as in the in the themes of the writing, I think this is is a picture most about um, crossing over. You know, like uh, as I mentioned, you know, in the in the sumptuous camera setup that we track the characters mm-hmm. crossing the border. Yeah. Um, that, that shot is famous, you know. Uh, yeah. And and it, it kind of represents. Um the crossing over into American society because you notice, you know, when the interracial couple first kisses on US soil, that is when the bomb uh, explodes. You know? yeah. Um that's a clear metaphor there, you know. Um the shot, the opening shot is really famous, but in my opinion, it is not the best single setup in the film. Mm-hmm. It actually is takes place later on in the film in a cramped motel suite. Um, that proves how Hank Quinlan, uh, you know, plants a dynamite, plants dynamite on the man he intends to oh, yeah. frame. Mm-hmm. You know, um, these scenes were a way for Wells to say, like, you know, I'm, I'm fucking on it, and I'm as good as ever. <laughs> um, and, and they are also like crucial to the uneasiness that runs through the the movie, as the you know this this gloating panorama of an unwholesome society. Yeah. Um, the aura of of crime seeps into. Every cell of you are watching this, you know, um, the city officials are corrupt. The nightman uh, who played, who's played by Dennis Weaver, needs a rest home. And, and the gang that come to the motel to get Susie um, are one of the first warnings of, of drugs in American movies. Yeah. Uh, not least, of course, Quinlan, who is, you know, uh, um, kind of like the sheriff who's gone to hell on immorality and and candy bars. Um the the evil here is not it's not just a touch you know it's criminality in the blood of American society, mm-hmm. uh and it's it's very well done you know D. Ma- Dietrich's um character Tanya who, yeah. who watch you know who watches over this doom it's it's kind of like a, a witch or a prophet you know a, a bleak reminder that there's no hope and then fifty years later you know the, these these ideas still feel like an open wound because of the, the Mexican American border like, yeah. like the issues there are still are still very prevalent. So yeah, I mean I, I, I rate this very, very highly. I would urge you to go to your Amazon Prime or VOD or whatever to go rent this film if mm-hmm. you're possible. If it's possible. Um, I would recommend that you watch nineteen ninety-eight recut version oh, yeah. as it hews closer to Austin Wells's um remarkable vision. Uh, but if you watch the original version also, it's not bad. It's actually pretty good. But the recut version is the truer one. Um, A bit like Blade Runner's uh, director's cut is better, you know. Um, So, yeah, uh, this is one of my favourite film noir's of all time. Uh, Any final thoughts before we move on to uh, Sunset Boulevard? Uh,
1: No, no, I I think that that, that summarises basically what my thoughts are as well. Um, Mm -hmm. Just excited to kind of jump into the rest of them. Like, this, again, like, it really has been like an exploration of, you know, uh, where something that I, I enjoy in the present day has come from and it's just been been educational I'll put it that way
0: yes definitely uh, next up let's talk about Sunset Boulevard which is probably uh, the most controversial pick that I've chosen here but I do consider it film noir yeah. um, it is a mix of film noir and black comedy because all the stylistic tropes are here including the voiceover narrative um Sunset Boulevard is uh, this 1950 American black comedy and, and film noir directed and co-written by Billy Wilder. Um, it's, of course, named after a major street that runs through Hollywood, you know, uh-huh. uh, which is the, the center of the American movie industry. The film stars William Holden as Joe Gillis, a struggling screenwriter, and Gloria Swanson as Norma Desmond, who is a former silent film star, yeah. uh, who draws, in, draws him into her demented fantasy world where she dreams of making a triumphant return to the screen in the talkies now. Um, Eric von Stroheim plays uh, Max von Meierling, uh, her devoted butler, uh, and Nancy Olsen, Jack Webb, Lloyd Goh, and Frank Clark uh, appear in supporting roles. Um, director Cecil B. DeMille and gossip columnist Hedda Hopper play themselves in, in, in a bit of meta metacasting. Uh, the film also includes cameo appearances by leading silent film actors such as Buster Keaton, mm-hmm. H.B. Warner, and Anna Q. Nielsen. So, um, I was a bit tempted to include this in one of our earlier topics. You know, the whole meta films about oh, yeah. about creators because yeah. this is one of the earliest versions of that. I I, I think you know this yeah. this idea of this aging silent film queen who just refuses to accept that her stardom has ended. You know, so she hires this young screenwriter to help set up her movie comeback. You know, mm-hmm. uh, the screenwriter himself is not a good guy. He believes he can manipulate her. But he soon finds out that he is wrong. Um, The screenwriter's ambivalence about their relationship and her unwillingness to let go leads to situations of violence, madness, and death. Um, I love this movie. Uh, In particular, movies about Hollywood haven't always been great, but this is one of the great movies about Hollywood Mm -hmm. uh, set within the framework of a film noir style. Uh, What are your thoughts on Sunset Boulevard?
1: Oh, Sunset Boulevard is definitely... Like I personally don't know if I would have picked this for this particular f- f- slate of four movies, uh, and it is so special because it is so different. Um, yep. you know, like we're not looking here necessarily as crime being the the center focus of that. Yeah, you know, the beginning of the film and and like the entire premise like starts off with a crime, sure. Uh, but it's not you know it's not like touch of evil where essentially like there's a criminal underbelly you know it's not like a third man where there's fraud going on or in maltese falcon where you know essentially there's there's some sort of like nefarious uh um uh, tr- trading of, of an artifact um mm-hmm. you know like this straight up like plays out like you know um what well, for some reason like it, it felt like a very twisted reverse version of of Perfect Blue, um, mm. you know. Uh, and and I I I kept trying to find a modern day equivalent of of that sort of like uh, demented uh, illusions of a grandiose star who basically like sucks everybody into her, um, you know, in, in into her gravity and into orbit around her. Uh yep. But I, I I couldn't actually come up with a- anything. But like this really does feel. Like, it it could be like the the prototypical kind of template for for movies of that ilk, you know, that that are to come. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, I found it fascinating. I I think in particular here. Um, oh no, what's her name? Uh, the the lead actress here, Gloria Swanson. Man, mm-hmm. she is, she is alluring and terrifying at the same time. Uh, it is very difficult to look away when she's on screen. Uh, yep. Just the kind of like, the persona that she plays as, as uh, Norma and, and her portrayal of someone who is a, a has-been essentially, but is still caught up with that lifestyle and with like uh, the illusion that, that she, you know, she commands, that, that similar sort of respect as she goes along and how that yes. devolves into the very, very amazingly acted final scene. Mm-hmm. Um is, yeah, is is kind of mind blowing actually. Um, just like looking at all of that, and and while it's not what people thi- typically think of as film noir, you're absolutely right. Like all the hallmarks of it, up there, uh, you know, you have you know the kind of like subversive nerves of what a film noir would be, the kind of like hidden layers between uh uh, uh the sheen right of, of of um the Hollywood life, you know, and and a lot of like twisted personalities that that. That show up in in a kind of duality that is important. Um, it's an important, important point to almost any film noir um, um, piece. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, uh, it it was. I I don't know necessarily if I would consider. Like, I I would not have categorized it as a black comedy necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, it's more tragic comedy to me than than black comedy necessarily. Um, it's a yep. bit hard to draw that distinction. I think as time goes by. Um, you know, and, and more movies get made and, and, you know, they sort of define those genres. Um, but yeah, like, Sunset Boulevard is a fascinating kind of, like, look in... Fascinating look and critique into the life of a Hollywood star or has-been Hollywood star in mm. that point in time, right? And then, of course, going on to read about the fact that, you know, uh, it was, like, an amalgamation of several silent, uh, silent movie... Stars. Silent film stars, or yeah. you know, maybe like a very thinly veiled uh, uh, caricature of a particular star in this in uh, in, in some cases. Uh was mm-hmm. just kind of fascinating to read. Like I never really thought about that or about how difficult it would actually be to transition from, from silent films into uh talking pictures, right? Um
0: mm.
1: yeah, and and what kind of psychological effect that would have on someone who at some at, at, like not that long ago, where it was at the peak of of his or her career, yep.
0: uh,
1: and wow, yeah, that just that, that was kind of like amazing and absolutely fascinating. That I did, I had to go and do some research about that. Uh, for sure, oh, yeah,
0: definitely. It, it 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 was one of those big uh moments in in art forms where you know the business of it and a new medium popped up and changed everything in yep. uh in a huge way. You know, it's equivalent to. Um, streaming popping up in music, you know, it just yeah. changed what music the industry was and in this way, the, the the popping up of talkies or talking films really changed the Hollywood industry in such massive ways that a lot of his former stars overnight became forgotten, you know. Yeah. And, and and Gloria Swanson, I think, uh, gives her greatest performance here as the silent movie star Norma Desmond, you know, mm-hmm. with her theatrical mannerisms, you know, and her, and her grasping talents and all of that and those grandiose delusions, you know, this forgotten star living in exile in this grotesque mansion just watching <laughs> old films uh, dreaming of a comeback yeah. uh, but it's also a very like twisted love story that, that, that keeps it from simply becoming a sort of waxwork freak show you yeah know? Um, William Holden is also really good as the screenwriter who he kind of tactfully inhabits the tricky role of being a writer half her age yeah. who also allows himself to be kept by her yeah. um, the performances hold the film together that gives it this emotional resonance that makes it real in and, and spite of its kind of uh, gothic flamboyance You know, the, the movie as you said really cuts close to the bone um, drawing so directly from life that apparently, from what I've read, many of the silent stars at the movie's premiere recognize personal details of the characters in themselves, <laughs> obviously taken from real life, you know. Yeah. Um, in no character, not even Norma, does it cut closer than with um Max von Mayerling, oh, uh, yeah. who was a, a once great silent di- director, now reduced to working as the butler for the woman he once directed, you know. Yeah. Yeah. and was married to you know they are unmistakable uh, unmistakable parallels with von stroheim who who directed swanson herself in queen kelly in 1928 and yeah. whose credits also include greed and and the merry widow you know he she he did go on to direct two silent films yeah uh, but but you know was wasn't very successful like he just couldn't adapt to it you know and i found that kind of meta uh messaging and meta like casting very interesting yeah. yeah
1: that reveal was was kind of shocking honestly right yeah. like yeah. this is this is the star that i groomed and and and, and uh <laughs> and filmed and then married and then mm. when she left i couldn't live without her i was just like damn that is twisted as fuck yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. um like for those reasons right like it, it really is like boulevard really stands out as a unique product of of its time and of mm-hmm. this particular genre for sure
0: yeah. Um, in one scene of Sensit Boulevard, right, um, mm-hmm. Norma Desmond is screening one of her old silent films um, for Joe Gillis, right? Yeah. Um, and, and, and Max is running the projector. The scene that you see in the film is from Queen Kelly, Which a real is, movie yeah. <laughs> that, that Swanson and Von Stroheim um, uh, starred in and directed respectively. And in that scene, they're essentially just playing themselves, you know. Yeah. Um later on, <laughs> when 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 Joe is moved into the big mansion, right, Max shows him to one of the ornate bedrooms, and as you said, you know, um explains it was the room, the husband, which leads to the reveal which was one of the best reveals of, of, of all four of these films. Oh, know? yeah, man. Um, <laughs> uh, man, I, I can't say enough about Swanson's Normal Desmond, you know, it's it skates close to the age of parody a little bit because yeah. I think Swanson takes enormous chances with The theatrical sneers and the swoops and the posturing—yeah, kind of holding Norma at the edge of madness for most of the picture before letting her slip over. Yeah, Uh, we might not kind of take her seriously, and but that's where Max comes in because he believes because he has devoted his life to her shrine. Uh We believe because he believes. You know, his his love convinces us there must be something worth loving in Norma, and that in turn helps. Explain how joe can accept her, you know. Um, Normal, of course, you know, is not a wrinkled crone by any means. She's only fifty years old in the film, yeah. which goes to show that um you know she's younger than Susan Sarandon and and uh, is today or, or Meryl Streep uh, yeah. and actors like that. You know, it just goes to show like how cutting and how vicious and how quickly stars are used and used up and thrown away yeah. back in the day, and it's it's still kind of same. It's still kind of the same right now. It's a bit sad, la. Um, the the. But the the point in Sunset Boulevard is that she has aged not in flesh but in the mind, you know, mm. and and she has become fixed at the moment of her greatness and lives in the past, you know. Um, Billy Billy Wilder and his and his co writer Charles uh, Brackett um, knew the originals of the characters. Uh, what was unusual was how realistic Wilder dared to be. You know, he used real names in in the films. He showed real people. Yeah. Um, he drew from life. Uh, he he, um, you know, like over of the details of there, and and if you are, I I I don't know about most people, but like I kind of read a lot of books on like the golden era of. Mm. Uh, and this is weird, cause like back when I was young, I read a lot of books on like. Um, twenties, thirties, forties, and fifties Hollywood. But I never actually watched any of those films. You know? uh, it was on, It wasn't until I grew up that I watched those films. But by that time, I had like this immense like knowledge in my head, just knowing about the industry. Uh, and this film kind of captures that in a in a very great way. You know, it's almost um. Oh, this is a weird parallel, but it's almost <laughs> Bojack Horseman. Oh yeah.
1: yeah, yeah okay yeah yeah I, I I get where you're coming from for sure.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, I agree. I I love the plot. I love the acting. I love the themes in it. Uh I like how the how the movie plays out. I was never bored at any point. Mm-hmm. Um the the histrionics and dramaturgy from, from uh from Norma Desmond is actually very entertaining and not oh, at yeah. all off-putting. Mm-hmm. Uh there's this it's it's all really good. You know, even the even the hidden love triangle with the young blonde paramount writer Betty, yeah. Uh where, who meets Joe early in the picture is also um interesting as well because they're trying to write um a very interesting film. Mm-hmm. Um I've seen Sunset Boulevard many times and and I, I keep being struck by how by how amazing it is, and I I, I man I I can't recommend this film enough. If, even more than the other four, the the, the other three yeah. that we're talking about, like you go watch this first, even if you're not into film noir, I yeah. think you'll like this film. Yeah,
1: yeah. I I don't know if film noir. Is, this isn't like the banner film for film noir, right? Like it yeah. it doesn't have. It's not it, it's not typical in in that manner, but because of that, it's also. I I think the most special of the four that we're talking about tonight.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's the one that goes most against the grain of the film noir type. You know, Mm it it uses the film noir structure or style as a framework. Yeah. You know, but it's very different from the other films that we're talking about. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, uh, definitely go out of your way to watch Sunset Boulevard. Um, If you like movies about Hollywood, particularly uh, movies that critique and dissect the, the seedier side of Hollywood, the darker side of Hollywood, um, this is one for you. In, in fact, it was the original one uh, before your BoJack Horseman's and all yep. of that. This, this is great. Uh, next up, let's talk about The Third Man. Uh, this is an atmospheric thriller um, and it is, uh, unlike the other films, it's not set in America. It's set in post-war Vienna, Austria. Um, the Third Man mm-hmm. stars Joseph Cotton as Holly Martins, uh, a writer of Pulp, of Pulp Westerns, Pulp Fiction Westerns? Yeah, Pulp Westerns, yeah. Um, who mm-hmm. arrives penniless as a guest of his childhood chum, Harry Lyme, again played by Austin Wells, uh, only to find him dead in Vienna. Um, Martins develops a conspiracy theory in his head after learning of a third man present at the time of Harry's death. uh, Running into interference from British officer uh, Major Calloway, played by Trevor Howard, uh, and falling head over heels for Harry's grief-stricken lover, Anna. Um, uh, this, This movie is one of the most interesting crime dramas particularly because of its setting mm-hmm. uh, and particularly because of uh, how different the plot was from say a Maltese Falcon or a Double Indemnity or, yeah. or other things of that sort You know, um, what do you think about The Third Man?
1: oh man so much Dutch angle so much yeah
0: dude, this, <laughs> this movie popularized the Do- dutch angle for sure
1: so much dutch. And, and i think it's I, I i don't have a frame of reference right because like it wasn't like i was there in the cinemas watching this for the first time when it came out where like dutch angle was a rarity in that like mm. dutch angle in this day and age right it's either like incredibly overused or used like every other every other shot or like you know uh, tastefully thrown in here and there like it has become you know, a, a thing that is part of uh, of cinematographic language that we mm. take for granted. But man, like the use of it here still feels um, eclectic, right? Like it feels purposeful and intentional um, in a very different way from what we we see now. Uh, you know, um, yeah, the, the just the lighting itself and and the way that they they choose to shoot some things in light and in shadow. Uh, and the standout kind of like musical score, which is just played singularly on a uh, on a zith- zither. Is it a zither? Mm. Yes. Yeah. Like like, it's very, it's it's very hard. Like I feel that if you have watched this film, and like the the soundtrack came on, like you would immediately know like this this is what film it was, right? Like that's how, um, unique a product it it feels like.
0: Yes, yeah, it, it's unique in a different way than Sunset Boulevard, definitely. Visually and sonically.
1: Oh yeah, for sure. I, uh, yeah. yeah, I think Sunset... Yeah, it's not... I mean, I, I think the furthest film to Sunset Boulevard would probably be Maltese Falcon. Um, yep. B- within the four that we're talking about. But like, Third Man has some very interesting choices, generally speaking, mm-hmm. right? Uh, in, in terms of the way that they... they shall, first of all, this is the only one that's not in America. Um, yes, you know it's it's set in post-war uh, Vienna, Vienna, right? Which all with like and taking into account like all the politics uh, of the day that they are trying to encapsulate within the story itself it makes it fairly interesting, right? Like there's a lot more that needs to be tackled narratively than you know, um, some of the simpler kind of like plots, like closer closer to Touch of Evil, a bit further away from Maltese Falcon.
0: Yes definitely yeah 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 um the the kind of shattered post war setting that you that you were talking about you know um, yep. if you if you weren't aware like um, after world war 2 vienna was split into four zones Mm-hmm. Uh into quarters, the French, American, British, and Russian zones, um, each with his own cadre of like suspicious officials, you know. And this is the kind of sinkhole where the intrigue takes place. Um yep. it, it, the, the American man, um Holly Martins, the, the alcoholic author of Paul Weston's, you know, he has, <laughs> as I mentioned, he, he came at the invitation of his college chum, Harry Lyme. But Lyme is actually being buried when Martins arrived in Vienna. So how did Lyme die? That's the question. Uh, and the engine that drives the plot, yeah. uh, and Martin's is the so, quote-unquote like detective in the film, um, although he's not a real detective. Yeah. Uh, but Martins plunges into the muck that Lime left behind. You know, um, Calloway, who, as I mentioned, the British officer in charge, bluntly says that Lime was an evil man and advises Holly to take the next train home. Yeah, but but Harry had a girl named a uh, Anna, right? Who who Holly sees at Lime's grave, and perhaps she has some answers. Um, certainly, Holly has fallen in love with her, although you know, his kind of trusting uh, Yankee heart is no match for her defenses. Um, the third man, because of his post-war setting, as you mentioned, right? Yeah, they, they were made by guys who who knew the devastation of Europe. First hand, mm-hmm. um, Carol Reed, uh, actually worked. The director of the film, Carol Reed, worked for the British Army's wartime documentary unit. Uh, and the screenplay was by Graham Greene, who not only wrote about spies but occasionally acted as one in real life. You know, um, Reed actually fought with the producers, uh, in the mo- in the movie over over the detail of it because he knew it firsthand. You know, a bit David Simony in that way. Um, uh, Selznick, you know, the, the producer of the film wanted to shoot on sets and use a more upbeat score, etc, yeah. etc. Et and and I think like a version of that the film would have been forgotten in a week, you know, because Reed defied convention by shooting entirely on location in Vienna mm-hmm. where mountains of rubble stood next to gaping bomb craters and and the the ruins of this former empire, you know, is is now supported by a desperate black market economy. Yeah. Uh those those creators, those ruins and things like that they're not on sets, you know, those are real things that they went there to film. Um, and, and the music also was ugh, perfect, yeah. you know, one of the most interesting scores I, I've I've ever, ever, ever heard. Like yeah. You know? Um, Reed and the cinematographer Robert Krasker, um, as we were talking about the Dutch angles, right? They they devised this unforgettable visual style, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, more shots, I suspect, are tilted than straight. Yeah. Um <laughs> and and the thing is, like, it's not used for just style, although it is very stylish. Yeah, they su- they suggest uh, a world that's out of joints. Mm-hmm. Um, there are fantastic oblique angles, uh, wide angle lenses, distort faces, and locations. Yeah, uh, and the bizarre lighting makes the city into this expressionist nightmare you know um a, a scene that comes to mind is like during a stakeout for lime you know a, a little balloon man wanders onto the scene and his shadow is like this mon this this monstrous three stories high you know it's it, it really looks like an expressionist nightmare uh like Vienna in the Third man is is a more particular and unmistakable quote unquote place yeah. than any other location in the history of films at that point mm-hmm. uh, and and the action fits the city like like a hand Fitting in a glove, you know. There are, there are so many great elements, uh, acting wise, stylistic wise, cinematography, uh, musically, that uh, that make the third man one of the best film noir's of all time. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah, man. Um, any other, any other like closing thoughts on uh, the third man before uh, we move on to our our final topic? I
1: I think third man has some of the most memorable lines from Wells, a Wells character. I'll, I'll yeah. Okay. Uh, I love the uh, the cuckoo clock um, line from from when they when they are on the what do you call that the Ferris wheel
0: mm-hmm.
1: right where he where he talks about like you know Italy and and all the the conflict and bloodshed and then you it, uh... wow fuck I'm paraphrasing uh, you know but they produce like uh, Michelangelo and, and Da Vinci in and the, yeah. The, like, yeah and then now i remember yeah, yeah. <laughs> then switzerland uh you know for all the the love and peace and democracy that they have produced the Ku clock um mm-hmm. you know just like one of those like super super iconic lines uh delivered uh, i later read about delivered because they had to make up time for the scene uh and pulled out of, of wells's ass uh yeah. in reference to like some art lecture from that he read some time ago it's it's like one of those like legend one of those like legendary things that you read about wells right as a person mm-hmm. and as a creator they just like how do you you know do that and then end up being one of the most like iconic lines of a very very like historically you know uh, important film just, just strange and, and bizarre in that way
0: yeah yeah you know um the the Third Man is very plot driven, but it's about more than plot, you know. It's mm-hmm. about this morally fermented atmosphere of, of post-war Vienna, uh so greatly mapped out by Graham Green's um uh screenplay. Uh so very well done. And 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 the the key to the picture's genius is undoubtedly the, the mutually beneficial and nourishing co- collaboration between Green and the director Carol Reed, you know, seen in in Tandem with all their with, with everything that they've done here, but it's a strong case to be made as you know one of, that they are one of the finest writer director teams in cinema. If you haven't watched any of their collaborations, I would suggest watching um Our Man in Havana and The Fallen Idol, um mm-hmm. two other movies that they they wrote and directed simultaneously. Yeah. Um, Steven Soderbergh um, actually has this like quote that I love about the Third Man. Um, Soderbergh once said that um the in spi- the thing is right the the amazing thing about the Ted Man is that it's a really great film in spite of all the people who say it's a great film you know? so it's <laughs> it's it might be overrated but it's not you know everyone keeps saying yeah. it's great and then you watch it and you're like yeah 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 it's great <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah
1: yeah i i totally understand yeah just one last yeah. point to make i i think like uh, if any of sure. our, our friends listening you know you're interested in like you know um you're, you're a musician or you're interested in just like film scores and things like that i think the third film uh, the third man is a fascinating study in the use of a singular instrument to mm-hmm. uh to to score a film right mm-hmm. uh much in like the same way i mean I, I, I unfortunately just because of like a huge knowledge gap in terms of like old, old films and and in film noir in general like it feels yep. a lot like Mikachu's uh score for Oh, what's that Scarrow film? The strange sci-fi one.
0: Uh, um, under the skin.
1: Under the skin. Yeah, like it has vibes like that, right? Like this kind of like strangely apt but very solitary instrument that matches the action so well. Like it is a fascinating study just into the, the the aptness of the score towards like you know what what's on screen.
0: Mm. Yeah. Definitely, yeah. Uh, go check out the Ted Man if you can. Love the score as well. I'm um, I'm not actually not too familiar with what was the instrument that was used.
1: It's a zither. Uh, oh, interesting. Which is a um, okay. So the zither is 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 like a class of string instruments, right? Like a modern day cross between what would be a harpist chord, uh, and like a lyre. Okay, okay, right. so there are many different types of zithers. Uh, they don't exactly say what was used in the third man specifically, at least from from the wiki and, and the very shallow research that I've done. but yeah okay, essentially okay. it's it's uh, yeah it's a it's a, a string instrument um, that's made out of wood uh, it, it looks a lot like many of the instruments in that particular family like a lyre or a harp or a harpist chord um, mm-hmm. yeah
0: yeah um awesome yeah, I I I never knew that you know like I always thought it sounded weird but I never quite you know um did my research into what it was uh, thanks for informing me yeah. on that a zither
1: Oh, actually cool. if you want to bring it closer to like a like a asian context right a zither is is kind of like a like a guqing, uh like a chinese oh. thing yeah a yeah, okay, similar okay. concept where it's it's strings strapped across like hollow wood essentially
0: Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Uh. Next up, and our final film, and the reason I wanted to put this last is because this was the <laughs> film, Noah, the, the movie yeah. that started everything else. Even, even Touch of Evil, uh, Sunset Boulevard, the multi, uh, the, the Man, the Maltese Falcon, predated all of these mm-hmm. and predated a lot of your favorite. Uh, film noir classics because this was the real one. This was the real originator. You know, this was the Matrix. In my think, the Bullet Time. Yeah. You know, this was the Granddaddy of them all in nineteen forty one. You know, it's uh in this noir classic, uh Detective Sam Spade, played by Humphrey Bogart here, uh gets more than he's bargained for. Uh, because when he takes a case brought to him by a beautiful but secretive woman played by Mary Astor, um, as soon as you know um this Miss Wonderly shows up, trouble follows as Sam's partner is murdered. Mm -hmm. and Sam is accosted by a man demanding that he locate a valuable statuette of a Maltese falcon. Um, Sam is then entangled in a dangerous web of crime and intrigue. Soon he realizes that he must find the one thing they all seem to want, which is the bejeweled Maltese falcon. Um, This film is among one of the most important and influential movies to emerge from the Hollywood system. as significant in some ways as its contemporary season Citizen Kane, which was filmed around the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, in addition to providing cinema with a new kind of pro- private investigator, you know, this is at this at this moment <laughs> in 1941, this was new. This 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 stereotype that we've come to know, yeah. this was new back then. You know, and the 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 Maltese Falcon also supplied an entirely new style by which to tell these kinds of stories, which is film noir. Um it was the directorial birthplace. Of uh, John Huston, uh, who would become one of the dozen or so more revered American bomb f- filmmakers, um, as well as the picture that transformed Humphrey Bogart from a B level supporting villain <laughs> to an A level leading hero. Yeah, um, it's insane because I mean, obviously I wasn't alive at that time, but it's insane to me that Humphrey Bogart was once like a character actor, character yeah. actor Humphrey Bogart. <laughs> you know. Um at the same time it also tells this twisty compelling story that holds up reasonably well uh more than you know 80 years later mm-hmm. uh and and it's it's pretty stunning that the film that invented film noir still remains one of the best film noirs of all time you would think that it, it will become dated and in some aspects it is but yeah. it still holds up don't you think yeah
1: mm-hmm. yeah definitely definitely uh it is oh man like when you if you are a fan of any any piece of media that is that is close to film noir, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and you watch the Maltese Falcon, like me, for the first time, um, and you are just like, oh, so that's where it came from. Oh, so that's where it came from. Like it was yep. a constant. It like throughout the entirety of like the first half of my view, I just like ah, mm-hmm. I get it now. I get it. It was it was very revelatory in that manner to me. Um, oh, interesting. Um, okay. You know, it's like, okay, okay, right. So, like, this is well. First of all, it is Pete hum- Humphrey Bogart, right? Like every other yep. character he has played since this point,
0: <laughs> from yeah. from here on,
1: end, is basically the same character, like Sam Spade, yeah, uh, in, in yep. different shades. Uh, yeah. And I was reading something about along the lines like Ingrid Bergman was studied uh, Maltese Falcons footage for mm-hmm. in preparation um, to to act. Uh, Alongside uh Bogart in we've covered this. Casablanca.
0: Um yes.
1: Yeah, in Casablanca. Yeah. Yep. So this is this is P- Humphrey Bogart. Sam Spade is your the epitome of your, you know, um noir sleuth type character. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, Deckard Kane, you know, owes so much to Sam Spade's character. Uh, hey,
0: every noir detective. Every noir it. yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, uh, since since when was this 1941? Yeah. Mm-hmm. E- every noir detective since 1941 owes something to Sam Spade and Humphrey Bogart's uh, rendition of him. It is, it is crazy how archetypical mm. it has become, right? Uh, and I think I think that is just a testament to his performance here and the way that the character is written, right? Uh, it's very easy to see it as as uh caricature-ish because of all that has followed this performance. Yep. Uh there was a moment that I said, like, okay, you know, I, I have to kind of separate the feeling that, you know, this is this is a, a caricature of of so many other characters that I've I've watched and, and grown to love over the years. Mm-hmm. But then you realize like this is the first, right? This is what has inspired everything else. Um, mm-hmm. and, and that to me is like one of the standout things um for that you know mm-hmm. uh, equ- equally the same I-, I do feel like the 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 film score here right again yeah. you know you can hear it like so many things just pay tribute to that uh you're just kind of setting the tone for that it's it's kind of yeah, it, it it's a trip to watch that. I, I do feel like I want to rewatch Maltese Falcon again because a lot of the time I was just like, Oh, you know, this this you links up with this or this links up with that or this might might have possibly inspired this or that. Right. And mm-hmm. there's a lot of moments like that where I do feel that I may not have paid as much detail, uh attention mm-hmm. to the detail as I would have wanted to. And then mm-hmm. especially reading kind of um Huston's uh the insane amount of preparation Huston did for this film is yep. kind of mind-blowing, right? And I want to honour that by, you know, giving it uh, another watch just to make sure that I, I I appreciate that instead of, like, just, like, oh, this is, like, a series of hyperlinks to all the other things that like, I've mm. enjoyed in my life that have to do with film noir, right? Um, yeah. Yeah, so that, uh, my first view of The Maltese Falcon was generally a lot of that
0: yeah yeah i mean I, I i can totally imagine that as well uh, because um the first time i watched the Multics falcon was back in the 90s and even then i was like oh this is where all those things came from man. yeah uh it's it, it's incredible you know not only does it, it the, does it create the structure for film noir um it also has one of the greatest MacGuffins of all time oh yeah uh, probably one of the first instances of a MacGuffin in a hollywood movie uh-huh. um and also like humphrey bogart sam spade um, in in a in a detective film and of crime and murder and all of that he makes a point of telling us that he prefers to be unarmed uh, and he has a very cool line in disarming other people yeah. uh and 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 what a what a superb performance from Bogart he is darker steelier and even more ambiguous than Rick in Casablanca mm-hmm. um he has all that world weary cynicism but none of the romantic sacrifice yeah. you know, just a, just a strangely um brutal manipulative streak you know he tends to to use the women that cross him uh, or cross his path for his own benefit, it's mm-hmm. a it's a tough, wised up routine. Um, he he often pantomime displays of furious anger to intimidate people, uh, and then he can uh, he can easily shift to like jaunty, unconcerned whistling when he's alone. Yeah. Um, it's 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 very great, you know the the, the archetypical private detective, um, and also I mean you know that that scene in in Time honored Style of film noir, he's approached in his office by a shady <laughs> lady. Yeah. You know. Um, like this time it oh yeah oh my
1: god like I was when, when that scene came in I had to laugh right And you yeah. think about all the other like directors and cinematographers across the year who have watched yeah. the Maltese Falcon and they're like you know what I want mm. that exact same shot in yeah. my movie and it's just like damn like how influential possibly can one film be right like to mm. have created a genre insane
0: yeah, yeah. Uh yes, The Maltese Falcon is I mean I I I won't argue that M- The Maltese Falcon is one of the best film detective stories of all time. Yeah. Uh it but it's also like the it's biggest legacy is that it's the progenitor of countless films um and and few of which have uh, achieved its level, never mind exceeding it, you know. Um mm-hmm. I think the movie offers fewer surprises to today's audience than it would have provided to those watching it eighty plus years ago. Yeah. Um primarily because like we've said over and over, so many of the in- innovations brought to screen here have become part of everyday cinematic lexicon. Yeah. Uh nevertheless, you know, the, the dialogue incorporated, uh the um Bogart being in top form, uh and, and Huston who was allowed total directorial freedom. Uh watching this film, uh, the first of the film of the films noir is is an experience to be embraced. Is it film noirs or films noir? I I don't know. Don't know. Yeah.
1: because film hmm uh, oh that's hard because film can also be plural. Uh Yeah, yeah, that's
0: why I I was like, oh, should I say film noir okay. or films noir? Then yeah.
1: then we would go like Occam's razor and just call it film noir. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah, 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 definitely. Uh, yeah, I mean the the Maltese Falcon arrived at a time when our audiences weren't familiar with these type of things, which is what made it so indelible in the minds of your grandparents, I suppose. You know, yeah. uh, and and all these years later, it's tough to imagine a film noir as as special as this or as influential because it can never be. You know, this was a once in a lifetime thing. Uh, and it's tough to imagine anyone but Bogart playing Spade. You know, yeah. Um, and it's he he's he embodies the detective so well, you know. He is, you know, so careless by life that he won't become a quote-unquote sap even for love. Uh, <laughs> and and he, and he hides this core of humanity that occasionally peeks out through haunted eyes. Uh, the the clipped rapid fire delivery of his lines has become iconic. Uh, when when we think of him, we most often think of Bogart as Rick from Casablanca. But yeah. I think, you know, even that character has more than a few echoes of Speed in him. Uh before the Maltese Falcon Bogart was not a big star like I said this movie elevated him to the stratosphere for the next 15 years he would he would want to dominate uh both on and off screen as one of the uh, one of the most influential power players and actors uh in the Hollywood system that yeah. that has ever been you know um I think the chemistry between the actors is popular as well the plotting is mm-hmm. really good uh everything about it like kind of hits on all cylinders and I can't imagine watching this back in the 1940s because it must have been like a, rev, a rev, revelation, uh, and and yeah. it still is, even if you're watching it today, but for different reasons.
1: Mm-hmm. I agree. I totally agree. Like I cannot imagine what it was like, right? Mm-hmm. Um, for it to have come out, and like I don't know if hmm, I I I don't know if we in our our generation necessarily have had a film come out in our time that we've watched in the cinema on on its kind of like debut that we can specifically say is genre defining or creating. I'm mm. I'm not sure. You know, mm. not of the level of the Maltese Falcon like, anyway. And I can only imagine what it's like to experience it that way.
0: Mm. Um I suppose I don't know like this is a this is a lesser version of it. I suppose the matrix which we watched okay in yeah. cinemas. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. That makes sense. But I don't know if the matrix necessarily is genre creating. You know no, no, I mean? no. Yeah
0: it, yeah, it it fuses a lot of genres and a lot of stuff in a very in- innovative way. But it didn't create a genre. It created a visual style, but mm. it didn't create a genre. Yeah,
1: yeah, uh, yeah. I agree. Fascinating. Yeah, I I, I wonder what it would be. I, I wonder if there's you know verbal or written accounts of of that particular experience. Um, maybe I'll take a look around for that. That's just like hey. super interesting.
0: Definitely, you know, like the the sad part is that anyone who might have seen this in cinemas, are probably did right now. Um, yeah. this is this is this is how old the film is. the The film is older than my grandparents. It's insane. Uh, well done to to all these directors, and these are just four of the best, uh, film noirs of all time. Yeah. Um, of course, there, there there's a lot of other film noirs, films noir, film noir that yes. I've not uh mentioned here. Um, yeah. are there any the other classics that you maybe have seen that you like uh, to
1: shout out? I've um, what is it called? Double...
0: Uh, Double Indemnity? D- yes. By Billy Wilder also. Yes, yeah.
1: Double Indemnity is one that I have watched. Uh, I actually... Okay, so this is one of those strange things where my uncle had like a LD.
0: Yeah.
1: Like a laser disc of Double Indemnity. And he's... Yeah, and for some reason I think I was like really, really bored and just wanted to use his LD. It was the choice mm-hmm. between watching Double Indemnity or... Metallica's, like, S&M con- concert with the orchestra. Oh! Thing, right? And okay, I, I already yeah. watched that. I was like, oh, fuck, mm-hmm. I want to use the LD player because, you know, it's a it's a relic of its time, right? <laughs> and I mm-hmm. happened to put on Double Indemnity for some reason. So, yes. uh, Double Indemnity... Um...
0: I can only imagine like when you were that young, right? Like by saying Metallica SNM, I mean, you were probably in your teens, early teens. Yeah, right?
1: Yeah. Early so teens.
0: I I can imagine watching a black and white film from the forties about insurance fraud. Yeah. Probably bought you.
1: <laughs> I, I, no, but it was kind of a uh, a strange thing, right? Because I had already yeah. watched the Metallica concert with <laughs> my uncle, right? Who who who's my mother's older brother. Like he's significantly older than my my mom, right? Yeah. And that was a strange experience in and of itself. You know, mm-hmm. and he, he went off to do something else. I wanted to check something else on LD because it just fascinated me. Like, what the hell is this giant, you know, CD essentially, right? Yeah. And, and how does it work? And how did we get from there to you know, <laughs> there was no streaming like, at that point in time. I was, I was still like early teens,
0: mm-hmm. right?
1: Yeah, but Double Indemnity was just like insanely. I wasn't expecting it to be about insurance fraud. Uh, but, it <laughs> yeah. is, but it is still fascinatingly complex in terms of, like... It, it might have been my first introduction to film law, actually.
0: Oh, that definitely must yeah. have been, right? Considering yeah. your age. Yeah.
1: yeah. Uh, at that point in time, I don't think I watched anything. Uh, it was interesting. I don't think I finished it, necessarily. Mm. But, like, that look of it must have remained in my mind f- since then. Because, like, I was always drawn to that after that. You know, and then mm-hmm. of course, like things feeding in from my childhood, like uh, the Batman the animated series, very clearly yeah. a film nothing. thing. Uh, one of, and one of my favorite animated like media of all time, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and 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 so on and so forth, right? And all the comic books, all the you know, Sin City and all of that, as they kind of came out, might have been because of Double Indemnity. Now that I think about it.
0: Definitely, yeah, it, it would have been um, another film that I would like to point out also is a film called The Big Sleep from Howard Hawks in 1946. is no uh, okay. It's based on a really, really famous, uh, a famous Raymond Chandler novel. Um, a really, really convoluted novel that is just as convoluted in film. Uh, and and The Big Sleep and the Raymond Chandler novel. If you have not seen the movie or read the book, yeah, uh, ah, they are, both of them are, are very very good. It's classic Chandler and classic Howard Hawks. Uh, and, and also one of the best film noirs of all time. So, you know, um, these are six films that I would, I would put as the six pillars of the genre that has endured till today. You know, so again, I, I, like I said, if you love stuff like L.A. Confidential, if you love Seven, oh, yeah. uh, think, things like that, the, the neon noirs if you love Blade Runner, uh, why not dig back, you know, beyond the 90s and the 80s? Uh, and and go watch the, the original versions of of the genre that, that kind of kickstarted it all. Yeah. Uh, and of course, I man, I forgot to mention Chinatown, which is oh. also one of the best uh, neo noirs of all time. You know. Yeah. Um. It's 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 hard to talk about Chinatown without talking about um, Roman Polanski and his controversial uh, nature. You yeah. Know? Um. Which is I think one of the reasons why I didn't pick Chinatown also because it's just you know there there are a lot of films of equal. Uh, quality to mm-hmm. Chinatown, yeah. without Without baggage that it possesses with Roman with uh with Roman Polanski, uh. At the same time, though, I do like objectively acknowledge that Jack Nicholson and Roman Polanski that like, kind of created magic there, and even, yeah, it was definitely one of the best film noir of all time. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Um. Any anything else before before we uh cap off this episode?
1: Yeah. Uh. For anybody who is interested in checking kind of these four films out, um. I, I mean, like I I know that I've uh. I've gone on and on about oh yeah you know um uh there there's just these so many things right that are referenced and I'll, uh paid tribute to and all of that, but just one yep. of the things I feel like personally, especially just because uh we recently did Midnight Mass and anything that Flanagan yeah. has done, uh mm-hmm. in particular uh Touch of Evil's tracking shot at the beginning, like their yep. single shot take, and then in Maltese Falcon the single shot. The that, that seven minute long single shot take where mm. where Gutman talks about the origin of the Maltese Falcon, like these things, yeah. like, these day and age were like oh my god, you know that that track uh their single take shot in this film or in that film or in Birdman or in like House of Uh Haunting, the Haunting mm. Hill and all of that like it's not new, right? Uh and yep. like these are some of the films that started to use this like very very early on when cinema first became a thing and it's very interesting to kind of see the genesis of that in some of the moments that we celebrate in modern television or cinema today.
0: Yeah, yeah. Or, or Norma Desmond would argue if you're saying that that wasn't the genesis of cinema. Um, yeah. Her movies were. <laughs> yeah. Uh, sure. the, the 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 advent of talking cinema, you mean. Yeah, yeah
1: talk, talking cinema.
0: <laughs> yeah, because... Uh, cinema's been around Since the 1910s But although They didn't have Any stuff like that lah. I do have a big Blind spot in cinema Much like you know You haven't really seen A lot of film noir right My yeah. big blind spot Is silent films uh, Huge There's there's like this 30 year history That I'm just not familiar with
1: Yeah I, I think for me The only silent Maybe we should do An episode on silent films Damn That's,
0: that's interesting Because it'll be a discovery For me as well
1: Yeah, Yeah I mean I'm only familiar With Chaplin stuff uh, Cha-
0: oh yeah, of course. Yeah, everybody's familiar with Chaplin, and I've seen Metropolis also.
1: Oh, interesting. Yeah, I've seen Metropolis too. Maybe this. Hmm. Okay.
0: Also, yeah.
1: Okay. Yeah, we'll we'll put a pin in it for like a future Behold episode to talk about silent film. Um. Mm-hmm. Uh, it it's gonna be an interesting. Uh, a podcast about silent films is a fascinating proposition. That I need yeah, to yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I need to wrap my head around uh, but yeah Irony. I- I'll be down for that I-, I think that would definitely be a new experience for sure
0: Okay, cool. Um, and also we'll be back in a couple of weeks to, yep. for a special episode of Behold, where of course it's Halloween, so we're gonna be talking about horror specifically. Um, I've kind of readjusted it to make it Southeast Asian horror now, yeah. Rather than just Asian, since you know Chris is from Singapore. So I picked uh we've picked three films that come from our region. Yeah. Uh we're gonna be talking about Satan's slaves mm-hmm. from Indonesia, uh as well as Shatter from Thailand, which is one of your favorites. Yep. Uh and I've included Malaysia's Horror, which uh came out in twenty nineteen as well? Because I think that was a really great film that I totally forgot about. Yeah. Um, I saw it at SGIFF and then put it out of my mind, and I was like, yeah, okay, yeah. That, that kind of fits with the theme. And Southeast Asia, you know, I think it's a more like it's a more condensed, you know, uh, theme. Like it's, it it just works better than Asian horror because Asian horror. You would have to pick a lot from Japan and Korea, right? Yeah, for sure. Them. We
1: could we yeah. could do Japanese horror as a single episode and not be done with like uh, barely scratch the surface of it. Uh, same for Korean horror.
0: Correct. Yeah, yeah, but but because I think Southeast Asian horror gets less acclaim internationally. Yeah. Uh, maybe we should. Yeah, yeah. Let's just focus on uh supporting regional.
1: Yeah, so that's the topics we'll be talking about for our Halloween episode. Uh, if mm-hmm. you're hearing this and you want to like catch some of those ahead of time, shutter on whatever your your VOD um, choices. Is. Row is on net- Netflix. Netflix. Uh, yeah, so yep. you can go ahead and access that if you want to like watch it and then hear what we have to say along. If it's that time of the year and you want to get your spooky on, then you know, <laughs> uh, yeah, definitely, we'll go ahead and do that.
0: Uh, and then we'll be back for General Equality 47, where we'll talk about what we do in The Shadows, Season 3, uh, What If, which is climaxing tomorrow. Mm. Uh, we'll be watching Venom, Let There Be Carnage next week. Um, everybody says that it sucks, but it's one of those so bad it's good films, much like the first one. Yeah. Uh, so I'm kind of interested in seeing like, um, you know, the, the, it's, it's weird, lah, but they've chosen to go a rom-com route with Venom, and I'm okay with it. At least it's yeah. not... Typical, right? You I mean, we 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 had
1: that sentiment, right, when we were reviewing the first one. Uh, mm. at the end of the day, and I remember, like, Hardy was just like, "Yeah, I'm I'm here for it." Uh, the the fact that they turn you know Venom and Brock's relationship into like a bromance rom com kind of thing, I'm I'm here for it. If they can expand into that, mm. and you're giving us Woody Harrelson as a crazy carnage, like, sure, I I'll be down yeah. to spend some time to watch that. Yeah, for sure.
0: All the reviews that I've read and watched says that Venom, Let There Be Carnage, is more overt of a rom com than the first one. The first one, first oh. one was an, ex- the first one was an accidental rom com. Like, they didn't quite realize what they were doing. Yeah, and then they were like, oh, that's what people latched on to. So let's just make this like a full on like bromance. Interesting. Between... Yeah. yeah.
1: Okay. Okay. Yeah. I mean, like that's different enough for sure, right? Like outside, honestly, outside of the. The uh, space night like Venom run in the comic books, right? Where he joins Guardians <clears> of the Galaxy, <throat> and maybe one or two of the novels, which I managed to read when I was a lot younger. Like Venom is a uh, has never really been explored as that fascinating of a character. And if you can bring something different to the table among all the superheroes slash comic book movies that we have,
0: yeah, sure, let's do it. Venom was the quintessential Todd McFarlane creation, where he looked cool, yeah. but there was nothing to him, you know? Yeah, Just like just like every other Todd McFarlane creation, like, they all look cool, but yeah. there's no real depth to them. You know? <sighs> uh, but yeah, whatever. We'll also be talking about Foundation, Season 1. Yep. Uh, Halloween Kills, which is you know, the new Halloween film coming out in time for Halloween. Uh, we'll talk about Injustice, the, the animated version, not mm-hmm. the video game um army of thieves which is the prequel to army of the dead uh more of a heist film set within the early years of the zombie outbreak mm-hmm. i still be talking about violet evergarden the movie oh yeah uh, and lots more also uh so tune in we've got lots in store for you and, and more next month also you know and if you like to hear more of us in our previous episodes uh like follow subscribe uh to our youtube accounts we are also available on our traditional mixed cloud home google podcast apple podcast stitcher uh, wherever you find your favorite podcasts, we are on there. Just search for General Equality or Behold, mm-hmm. and also Asian Nightmares, and we will be all there. Yep. Yeah. Um. And that's it for this episode of Behold. Uh. Till next time. This has been Zero. I'm Isa. Goodbye, guys. No.